everyone. If you can turn your attention to the front, that'd be great. Great to see all of your shining faces. Well, we are, uh, we started a few weeks ago, we started a series on addictions. And in our church, we love preaching on light and uh, fluffy topics. It's just how we roll. After this will be, you know, something on how to actualize your inner potential. And, but today we're doing addictions. Uh, it's, it's a big deal. What we talked about a few weeks ago is that actually all of us are on what's described as an addiction continuum, that all of us struggle with this in some kind of way, because as the experts describe it, anxiety is an anxiety disorder. It's a way to cope with life outside of love and faith. So think about that. Addiction is a way to cope with anxiety, to cope with the difficulties of life outside of love and faith. Faith in Christ, being part of a loving community, receiving his love, it's somehow outside of that. So an addiction can be a substance, that's the most common kind of addiction, and we have a support group for that in our church, which I think is absolutely outstanding. But it can also be something like social media. That when you're anxious, this is what you turn to. If I can just scroll long enough, maybe all my troubles will go away. It could be going to the gym. It could be pursuing a career. That the way that I'm going to overcome the things that I'm anxious about is I want to make a lot of money. I'd like to make a name for myself. I'd like to have a place that feels stable, uh, a home that I feel like I can afford. It could be something like that. It might even be something like self-discipline. That I think the way out of my anxiety is I just have to buckle down and try harder. So whatever it is, it is a way to manage our anxiety. Now what uh, other authors describe addiction as being is voluntary slavery. Voluntary slavery, where we choose what we end up becoming enslaved to. A word that I've been meditating on when I think of the idea of addiction is the idea of bondage. So when we break down the word bond and age, we see that what addiction is, is being uh, connected or bonded or attached to something that ultimately enslaves. It's a kind of relationship. But it's a relationship that's actually an abusive relationship. It's being connected to something that doesn't know how to operate in love or kindness, and so it ends up consuming us and using us just as we're we're trying to use it. We've talked about someone named Johan Hari. He he did a TED Talk on addictions that I really recommend. I just listened to it again. I really like it. There's lots of valuable thoughts in it. Hari is H-A-R-I, and if you look up Hari Rat Park, uh, you will... um, you'll get to his uh, TED talk. And here's what he says. Uh, The way out of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. The goal is not simply to stop consuming whatever it is that we were consuming, but it's actually connection is the way out of addiction. 
He references Bruce Alexander, who I understand is a, or at least was a prof at SFU. He did this experiment called Rat Park. What they did with rats is they exposed them to, um, to heroin and the rats loved it. It was a super good time. And then what they did is they took those same rats, but they built uh, what they described as rat park. It was a Disneyland for rats. It was everything that you could ever want if you were a rat. Mostly it was cheese and little wheels that you could you know, run on and everything. But it was mostly about um, uh, having uh, lots, of, lots of what we would call relationship, but lots of rats. And they discovered that those same rats when they were in what could be described as a healthy community, didn't go off to, uh, to that substance abuse anymore. And so they began to think that maybe the difficulty is not so much a physiological connection to something, but maybe it's an unhealthy connection to one thing because we don't have a healthy connection that we really need in another place. The... Uh, the human experiment that was going on at the same time was in Vietnam. This is during the Vietnam War. And there was about 20% of American soldiers who were addicted to some kind of substance, heroin, typically, when they were overseas. They came back and they studied those people. And what they discovered is that those that came back to healthy relationships gave up their addiction those who didn't remain addicted. Maybe Dr. Nate needs to be up here again. But um, uh, I'm told, I know nothing about medical things. I don't ever want to go to a hospital. I don't enjoy anything about that. But uh, I'm told that if, you, uh, if you're going to um, get pain medication, it's going to be something that could actually, uh, you could get addicted to. So if you've, I've been through, I had my, one of my best prayer times after, uh, <laughs> after I had foot surgery, me and Jesus were like that. It was absolutely incredible. Um, so it's, it's possible, you know, that you, we can get addicted to the pain medication. But if you've had any, I assume most of you here who have had that experience, you're not addicted now. Because there's more going on than just a chemical addiction. It only hooks you if there's the lack of significant and meaningful relationships in your life. That is the deciding factor as to whether something becomes an addiction or not. So again, follow me now. When we think of bondage, it's an, abu uh, an addiction is an abusive relationship. This is why the, we talked about the blessed life last week. Path to happiness is narrow because there's only ultimately one relationship that will never be abusive and it's our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's impossible for that relationship to be abusive. It's always healthy. It's always built on love and always an expression of faith and trust in him. So that it makes sense then that the most purest relationship the Bible describes as coming to God through the narrow door. There's only one way to live a blessed life, a life that is not full of abusive relationships, and is to be first connected to God. 
Addiction is very wide. There's, there's uh, a million ways to have an addiction. But they're all alternatives to trusting in God and to be part of a loving community. So how do we have then healthy relationships? How do we move outside of bondage into relationships that are life-giving, that are about love and, uh, and freedom? The first step to freedom is counterintuitive. We are basing this series on what's called the Beatitudes. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is basically outlining the core elements of his teaching. And this is how he begins. And it's actually the first step in a road to freedom and right relationship with God and others. Here's what it says in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor. Now, the poor here is really means physically poor. In that context, uh, when we think about the poor here, we might have a different uh, image of what the poor are, you know, if we correlate that to what the poor are there. But the poor were basically those who were powerless and enslaved. It was about having rulers oppressing you. To be poor meant that you didn't have a choice. It wasn't like you were lazy or lacked talent. You just, you, you were oppressed by people who were taking advantage of you, keeping you down to, for their own personal benefit. But then it goes on, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those whose spirits are impoverished, not just their bank account. And that is described as a humble person. Blessed or happy are those who are humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Somehow, a blessed relationship with God and others is built on this idea of humility. That is the doorway out of addiction and into something that's life-giving. Isaiah 57 builds on this. For this is what the high and lofty one, exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. There's that same phrase. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite or the repentant. Jesus goes even farther in Matthew chapter 9. He says this, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The first step toward freedom, a life-giving relationship with God and others, is humility, is recognizing the, the, the poverty of our soul. To see our need for him and others. It's the only way through. I find humility to be a fascinating description of a first step toward liberation. When you think about how liberation is described in our society, what is the first step of liberation? It's to stand up for your rights. It's to say, what is being done to me is wrong. Nobody else is going to care for me as much as I care for myself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect around myself a group of people who also feel oppressed in a similar way, we're going to stand up for our rights and demand that our voice be heard. And the only way to be liberated from oppressors is to assert ourselves in power. And then Jesus comes along and says, you want to be free? Let me tell you how to be free. Humble yourself. 
What? Humble yourself? That makes absolutely no sense. Philippians 2.3 says, In humility, value others above yourself. If you're to have a healthy relationship with God, we need to be humble. We need to value him above ourselves. Even if we're to have a healthy relationship with others, we're to value them above ourselves. It's the way into healthy relationship. So if that's the first step in the Beatitudes toward freedom and liberation, what is the first barrier? And this is what we're going to be focusing on today. And it's obviously pride. Pride, get this. This is a fascinating thought. Think about what you might be addicted to. Um, reality TV, video game, an ideology, your own thoughts. You might be addicted to comfort. And the barrier... To, uh, to getting free from that would be pride. I find that that's not, that doesn't feel intuitive to me. It doesn't feel logical to me. But if uh, the poor in spirit is how we get free from addictions, then it must mean that pride is the way that we stay stuck. What's pride? Pride is basically independence. Pride says, I can do what I want, when I want, and nobody tells me what to do. You can see then that it's the opposite of connection. If, if the way out of addiction is not sobriety, but connection, uh, pride doesn't want connection. Pride wants to do, wants, wants an independent way to live. And of course, we can see this in Western society. We talk about it a lot in our church. Uh, if you characterize Western society, if you know what's being taught in our schools, what's being valued in our own hearts, is uh, my greatest hope is to be financially independent and maybe emotionally independent. I don't want to get hurt. Other people hurt me. The conclusion must be that if I can just only need myself and rely on myself and look to myself, I'm going to be free from the pain and discomfort around me. Pride is independence. Pride is also blame. Pride says, it's not your fault. It's not my fault, it's your fault. It's always your fault. I did my best. Yeah, I didn't do it perfectly, but I did my best. You clearly didn't. And so you can hear somebody who's full of pride is they're always talking like this. Always, but you, if you would have, then I could have. But since you didn't, well, I didn't have a choice. Pride is also using. I find it interesting that one of the uh, colloquial ways that we talk about addiction is we, we say that somebody's using. That's an excellent term. Because when we're proud, we only use others. We're users. That's, it's what we do. Uh, people and things are resources for us. We're trying to build autonomy and independence, do our own thing. And so we might draw close to people. We might even draw close to a Christian community. But the motive for that is you're a resource toward me being who I imagine myself needing and wanting to be. The posture is uh, even using relationships for self-serving purposes. Here's where this gets difficult. 
There is a, uh, a phrase that we use that uh, uh, we attach lots of our problems to, and it's self-esteem. I have a hunch that if I was to ask any of you how you feel about yourself, some of you might say that you're amazing. That'll be rare. I'd like to meet you. Uh, most of you will say, well, I mean, I'm struggling with self-esteem. I, I, I don't think I'm that great. And uh, I've got lots of issues, both emotional, um, psychological. And, uh, and I think that life is, is so hard for me it must mean that I have low self-esteem. And if I could feel better about myself, well, then I would be more confident in engaging with other people. I'd have healthier relationships. Uh, oh, this is hard. I think uh, self-esteem has become a replacement for pride. I think it's true. See, if I go into a relationship uh, with low self-esteem and, uh, and I go in, I'm really insecure and I'm not very engaged. I don't know how to ask you questions. I feel super self-conscious. Who am I thinking about that whole time? Me. And I think I'm not going to do it very well. I'm probably going to embarrass myself. I'm going to look dumb. It's the opposite. Of, uh, of love. The way that I would be able to engage in a healthy way with other people is if I thought about you, not me. I've noticed this when I preach. I'm, uh, I'm mostly insecure. Never feel like I'm doing a very good job. And my freedom isn't, Greg, you're an amazing preacher. <laughs> like, let's just be honest here. Uh, you know, just the way you put words together is, you know, jaw-dropping. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. Uh, um, I didn't mean it to be that funny. But uh, <clears throat> what's my way out? My way out isn't thinking I'm great. My way out is thinking about you and wanting to serve you. I might not be doing it well, but at least I'll be doing it well for your sake, not mine. Self-esteem doesn't help me. Love does. But pride gets me focused on how I'm doing, whether I'm succeeding, what my performance is, what you think of me, and I've lost you in my uh, contemplation about myself. And my only freedom is humility, valuing others above myself, laying down, get this, my self-esteem for a greater good. Then I'm connected, then I'm free from being a user. So here is the, here is the main problem with pride in you and me. We're all in the continuum, okay? So it's not a black or white. We're all in the continuum. The proud don't bond. The proud don't bond. 
because there might be another church, another spouse, another friend, another career that might serve us better. And so we never really fully connect. We never fully connect. So we live together instead of get married. Because, hey, you never know. Someone else might come along. It's not me, it's you, kind of you. But, uh, but somebody else might come along and uh, just fulfill me more. You understand. Because I'm sure that you have the same criteria that I do. So let's just agree on that at the front end. I can't tell that I'm proud. Often. Except that I'm not connecting. I'm not being vulnerable. Giving my heart away. Letting myself join. Be known. Care about others. I don't, I don't. When I am defended, I'm being proud. And if I'm defended, it means I'm not in a posture of receiving, which means I'm going to become enslaved to the very things that I use as resources to build my self-centered kingdom. I think this is a very sobering thought to me. That what if the reason why we struggle in our friendships, in our experience of Christian community, in our relationship with God primarily, what if it's a pride issue? I've been noticing as I've, as I've traced society over the last number of decades, I've noticed that we have been replacing in our society moral categories with psychological categories. When I was younger, uh, and people would describe someone else as having problems, they would say they're proud or conceited, or they would use a moral description. Now we say they're in pain. They're anxious, which could also be true. I'm not saying that's not true. But it's just fascinating that our descriptions of ourselves and others have morphed out of moral descriptions of ourselves. And so we come to a place like church and it just feels harsh because we're using moral descriptors instead of psychological descriptors, and we find that in our society uncomfortable. But here's what I've discovered. If Debbie and I are having a difficulty, I don't change and repent until I have a moral problem. If I go into the moment and I say, you hurt me, I'm not going to change. If I go into the moment and say, I'm proud, odds dramatically increase in me not wanting to stay there. What if our problems are moral and addiction is a sign that we're immoral? That we're using other things and people as resources instead of walking in covenant and humility and love. 
I find this personally a helpful way to think. So what then kills our pride? What kills our pride? Well, we've already been talking about it. It's seeing our moral poverty. It's recognizing our moral poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're, we, have, we have a moral poverty. I remember the first time I experienced poverty. I would have been, oh, I'm guessing like eight to 10 years old in there-ish. My, um, my father was a welder in Port Alberni at the pulp mill. He made some good money. When I was six years old, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. They tried to give him jobs. Uh, but eventually, there was nothing that he could do. His hands weren't working anymore. He could hardly walk. And so he was unemployed. And, uh, you know, I've... <laughs> it's so funny. But I... I, uh, I hate... I don't know if I... I hate bologna. I hate it. Because at this time, this is... All, this is the, if you uh, had a friend who worked in a... Uh, in a factory that, uh, like a butcher factory thing, and at the bottom is like wieners and then bologna. <laughs> like when everything else has been used up, that's what you get, okay? But it's all we could afford. And so we had bologna that was fried and stewed. It was hot, it was cold. It was every way that you can imagine it. I hate bologna, but it's all we could afford. And I remember, uh, uh, a social worker came into our home and I remember my mom and dad being so embarrassed. The social came, worker came into our home because we couldn't afford food. My family is not a lazy family. We were powerless and we needed help. And so we humbled ourselves to get some help. Our pride was beat out of us when we saw our physical poverty. The only way to be delivered from, uh, from a spiritual pride or an emotional pride is to recognize our moral poverty. And when we do, Jesus is beautiful, the church is a gift, and I'm only grateful. What kills our pride is seeing our moral poverty, which is looking at what's described as the brutal facts, being honest with ourselves, not using psychological euphemisms, being honest with our moral condition. In the... Uh, in our survey site this morning, the, uh, the worship leader said something that really struck me. He said, the only thing that we contributed to our salvation is our sin. <laughs> well, that's a little harsh. <laughs> you could lighten up a little bit, like I did choose Jesus, but anyways. Uh, but nope. What I contributed to that moment was my sinfulness, and it was only his grace that saved. Isn't that powerful? There's something about coming to the end of our illusion of being moral, 
that delivers us from our pride. And here's what it is. It's seeing the relational cost of our choices. If you evaluate your life according to your success in business, according to a particular skill set, something that you're good at, um, the amount of money that you make, uh, the amount of things that you know, if you, um, if you uh, judge yourself according to those things, you could be doing fine. But when you judge yourself according to the health of, of your relationships, that's a different kind of evaluation. And so the way that we get delivered from pride is by looking at what we are contributing to the relationships of those around us, particularly with God and then with our family and our friends. And we're honest about what we contribute to those relationships. There's something we've talked about this in the past, and I think it's worth bringing up again in this context. I know very little about it, but I'm fascinated by the idea. And that is that in some uh, indigenous communities, they practice what is called a healing circle, where somebody who has committed a crime inside of the community is put in the center of a group of people, and the, the people who are on the outside of the circle are all of those who have been affected by their sinful behavior. And one by one, each person in the circle goes around and tells the person in the middle how their choice negatively affected them. We're thinking of instituting this in our D groups. And <laughs> <clears throat> but the idea is that uh, after you hear after you and I would hear how our choices affect the people around us, it's hard to stay proud. It's hard. And so when we take what's described in AA as a moral inventory, and we're honest about how, we, how our choices have affected others, we are well on the road to recovery. Well on the road of hating how we use others, use other things and have been used and are wanting a more robust and life-giving experience of relationships. So what kills our pride is asking our friends or family, what's your experience of me in this relationship? And then you say the three hardest words in the English language, tell me more. Tell me more. This is how we get free. I don't see people practicing moral transparency. I don't see it. I think it's one of the things that makes AA so incredible is that there's a group of people that you'll actually be honest with about how you're really doing. But you, don't even, you can't even know each other's names because it's so vulnerable. Full names. But what if the church could be a place where we could be fully known and accepted in that place? I think it would change the world. I really do. So what kills pride is seeing our moral poverty. What makes humility safe? We're almost done. What makes humility safe? Because you can imagine 
I've tried to be humble, and I'm sure that you have too. And it's often not gone well. Have you noticed that? You try to tell somebody what you're struggling with, and then they give you super superficial advice. Like, I wouldn't do that. Why don't you stop then? It's like, okay, let me write that down. Stop it. Okay. Okay. I never thought of that before. This is new information. Um, and so we've tried, and sometimes it hasn't gone well. What I find fascinating about this verse is the fruit of, of uh, being poor in spirit. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a fascinating connection. People who are humble in heart receive a kingdom, not just a better experience. This is excellent because a kingdom has a king. And instead of being enslaved to things that will ultimately use and abuse us, abusive relationships, addiction, we now are under a safe and good king. And he keeps us safe, even in traumatic and difficult life circumstances, otherwise known as the church. That God, as we trust him to be our, get this, ruler, ruler, we are safe to live transparently and humbly with one another. Because our ultimate identity is not in what others think about us, it's what he thinks about us. And he says that he loves us while we were yet in moral poverty. While we were yet sinners, he loves us. That means that my security isn't in my performance. My security is in his love. And so because I feel loved by him, because his love is powerful, he's a king, that means that I can go into dangerous, emotionally dangerous places and still be okay because I'm covered by my king. And now we are on the road to liberation. Rulership of a king is powerfully helpful in practicing humility. So all kinds of relationships don't save us. We can have enmeshed relationships and abusive relationships. The only kind of relationships that are ultimately healing and helpful are those that are under God's loving leadership. And so we bond first with him and then with others. This is where humility is safe, is in his kingdom. So in conclusion, humility gives us the freedom to belong. The freedom to no longer be a user, to no longer use a church or a group of friends as resources, but to actually love them and be loved by them. And we find that as our, uh, as our experience of God's love directly from him and through others, as that experience increases, our need to be addicted dramatically decreases. Because now the longings of our heart are being satisfied. Humility gives us the freedom to belong, to be known and loved. Don't you long for that? I tell the story of the first time I was fully honest with another human being. I was in counseling. And I remember the relief 
of telling someone everything. I'd never told anybody everything before. Now, Debbie knows everything about me. And when my counselor responded with compassion, I couldn't hold back the tears. It was so healing. And my addictions felt thoroughly inadequate and unattractive in light of love. And this is what God promises each and every one of us. Not liberation into some nakedness is being covered by the love of God, known, cared for, understood. So let me say this in closing. And could you please hear this? Because this is a vision for me. Humility is not just to be the first quality of us as individuals. Can I please say it should be the first quality of us as a church community? Wouldn't it be amazing that our church would be known for its humility? This would be remarkable. Churches are known for a lot of things. Humility is not at the top of the list. But that we would be a humble people. So that when people come through the door whose sins are different than ours, that they would come through the door and be as accepted as we hope to be accepted in our sins. We don't think we're better than anybody else. And we're here together trying to understand how Jesus can be the hero of our story and not us. We care genuinely. We're free. But freedom will only be experienced if we take the first step, and that's humility in faith. If we can have the worship team come up, we're going to be having communion in a moment. And I encourage you, as I meditate on this myself, that we could have our communion be an act of humility, a laying down of our pride and our confession that we need Jesus. So let's please stand together. I'd like to pray for us. We'll, uh, we'll sing a worship song together and then I'll lead you in communion. So wait uh, until I come up again. Father, I thank you so much for giving us such a clear road to freedom. I thank you that it isn't with a screaming voice and demanding our rights. It's in the humility of saying to you, we need you. We need your family. We're not above community. People and things are not resources. We don't use. We give and receive love. So Father, I ask on behalf of my friends that you would give us all the courage to take the first step into freedom. That you would humble our hearts, that we would be known as a people who are poor in spirit. And there we will find your kingdom.